Guys, thank you so much for having me here. It's been 14 years since I've been in this room. And this room actually hasn't changed almost at all. But that area, holy moly, uh, lockers. That's just amazing. Um, it, was, it was really cool to see. Just, just, it's amazing what's happened since I've been gone. And, and um, the, the great thing is all of the seeds that uh, Bob and Clay and, and all of us who were on staff then are planted. You know, you guys are harvesting. And year after year, every time new people come, they're just feeding into the seeds that you guys are planting as well. So it's pretty amazing. Wesley is a spiritual growth factory in many ways. I mean, it, 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 it churns out disciples of Jesus every year, which is kind of cool because that's the call of the church. So I've, I'm excited to be back here. It feels very much at home. And uh, Clay asked me to come speak on a few topics. And so today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the Bible in an hour or the Bible in 48, 49 minutes. I can't see the clock, but roughly. I'm going to be here and if we go a little bit past one, if you have to leave, my feelings won't be hurt. Leave, uh, no problem. If I, I'm not going to go, hopefully not too much longer, but I'll stick around. And my favorite type of ministry is interaction and Q&A. I used to do on Thursdays, me and my roommate would go preach down at Tate Center. Um, and kind of to counterbalance the people that would usually come and yell, we would try to go down and do more apologetics-based, relational, but still preaching. And so I, I really like the interaction. At any point, if you got a question, just, you know, raise your hand, yell, stop me, whatever. Um, and I put on your seats, there's a card to the website. The ministry that I do is called Disciple Dojo. Uh, those of you that don't know anything about martial arts, dojo is where you go and train with people and you get better and you equip one another by basically trying to beat each other up in a loving way. And that's a lot like what discipleship and theology is within the church. You want to bring your ideas together. You want to, you want to put your ideas up against the most rigorous scrutiny that they can handle. And as a result, you, you leave more equipped, better equipped. And so that's, you can hop on the website and you can see all about, but I've got a lot of video, audio resources, stuff like that. What I'm going to talk to you today is from a course that I do. It's a DVD course for small groups called Bible for the Rest of Us. And it's basically, we developed, I developed this course at my church in Charlotte over a period of about seven or eight years to, uh, to take people who know nothing about the Bible, like they just pulled the wrapper off their first Bible ever, and people who've studied it for 50 or 60 years, which I have in my Bible classes sometimes, and think that there's nothing else that they can know about it. Well, this course is designed to meet both of those people where they are and to impart and to bring them further along in their knowledge. And we always started off um, with, and I'm going to explain the image for it the, tomorrow, so come to that if you're able to, the, the, what Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord has to do with the Bible. But we're going to start off today um, with a Bible overview, the basic biblical story. You should have a handout that uh, Clay printed up or had printed up before, and so if you're a note taker, I was never a note taker, I doodled in the margins all the time, I was... Um, yeah, if, if you're a note taker, if you're type A and you like filling the blanks and stuff, then you're in for a treat. If not, don't worry about it because you can just sit and listen. This is just for people to have something tangible to take away. <clears throat> but one of the things that I've found in the 15 or so years since I've left here is when, when it comes to teaching the Bible and to studying the Bible, I found that people who were raised Christians, uh, youth group leadership, served at places like Wesley or other campus ministries, really involved, lead Bible studies, go to passion concerts, go to 
uh, seminars around the country, workshops, all this stuff, I've found that one of the things that, that is lacking across the board is an overview understanding of the Bible, the story of the Bible. It's, it's, and it's not through anybody's intentional disregard. It's just we don't get taught the Bible the way the Bible writers intended us to be taught the Bible. In the Middle Ages, somebody came up with a good idea at the time, but it had adverse effects, which is they put chapters in the Bible. And those chapters encouraged people to be able to find where they're at so that they could follow along. But the bad side is it, it, it broke up the Bible into these subdivisions within the books that they were given. And then a couple hundred years later after that, someone took it to another step and they added verses in the Renaissance period. They added verses and that broke up and fragmented the biblical text even more. So now, instead of sitting down and reading a book of the Bible or reading a letter, one of the epistles, or something that one of the authors wrote, we sit down and we do a quiet time and we take a paragraph or a sentence or a couple of verses or maybe something from Psalms, something from Ephesians, because you've got to read Ephesians, something from, you know, wherever, and we kind of come up with this patchwork of, of our understanding of the Bible. So we, we know that there is such a time as Bible times, but we can't really say when that is. Uh, we know that Abraham, Moses, and Noah... We're all in the Old Testament. But we, always, we don't always have an exact understanding of, so where do they fit in, in relation to time and to the story and to the flow and everything. <clears throat> so what I've found is if you, give someone, if you give someone an overview of a Bible, the whole big picture, then it's like a, it's like a clothesline or, or a rack. And they can then hang those verses, hang those passages, hang those stories where they belong and pretty soon, eventually, they have a full, uh, a full clothesline, so to speak. The analogy uh, is there's a box there at the bottom that says the jigsaw puzzle analogy. And that's, that's my favorite way to talk about studying the Bible is think about who does jigsaw puzzles. All of us nerds can raise our hands, yes. Jigsaw puzzles. First thing you do when you get a jigsaw puzzle, what do you do? Edges. Right. You find the four corner pieces, and then you find the edges. Why do you do that? It's easier. It gives you a frame. They're easy to identify. You know, okay, this is purple. And the thing on the box is as a purple ball of yarn. So that must mean that it, this piece goes roughly here. So put that there. And then this one is, you know, here's the kitty's paw. So we're going to put the kitty's paw right over here because he's playing with the yarn, but he's on this side. And you do that and you get the edges and pretty soon you have a frame puzzle. You know the parameters. You know roughly where things are going to fall. And then you can take the individual pieces and you start putting them together. Now, if you really wanted to challenge, you could open up a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. You could take out the first piece. You could look at it. And you could take out a second piece. You could look at that, and you could try all eight ways to fit them together. And then throw one out, pick up another one, fit it together, pick it up. Eventually, you put the puzzle together just through statistics. It's going to happen. But that's a really dumb way to do a jigsaw puzzle. It's really arduous, and you don't get anything appreciative of it. You just, it's just drudgery. Even worse, you could get a jigsaw puzzle, 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. You pour it out. You know that it makes this beautiful picture, and you take a piece, and you take a piece out, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, this is a beautiful piece. Look, you can see half of his eyeball here. This is so amazing. And you put it back in the box. And then the next day you come and you take another piece, a different piece. Oh, look at this piece. It's wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. And you put it back in the box. 
And you just do that every day. You just examine a piece. You never put the puzzle together. Again, terrible way to do a jigsaw puzzle. But yet that's the way most American evangelical Christians are taught to study the Bible. Is a piece here, a piece there, a verse here, a verse there. So what I want to do is give you the edges, give you the framework, and then in your own Bible studies, in your own time of spiritual growth, your own reading, then you can start to put the pieces together. And eventually you'll get a bigger picture. You'll start to see the full thing. So the Bible, you can break it up into five sections overall. And, and I've given you on the page, if you want to take notes, you can fill in the blanks right beside it. The first section, of the Bible, just remember, five sections and you've got the whole Bible down pat. All right? First section is creation in the fall. Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is what I tell people when I teach on Genesis. It's the preface of the Bible. Another example for geeky people is, remember Lord of the Rings, the movie? Remember at the beginning how they told this long, drawn-out, you know, it was uh, Kate, what's her name, was telling the whole story, and then, and then there was the ring of the... Da, 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 da. And they went through this whole thing, and there's battles, and there's epicness, and there's rings, and there's all this stuff. And then after all of that, then they showed the opening credits, if you remember the movie. So it was like five, ten minutes worth. Well, that's, that's a perfect parallel to what Genesis 1 through 11 is. Because the beginning of the Bible, the real story of the Bible begins at Genesis 12. The main, the, the, it zooms in and says, this is what we're going to focus on for the rest of the Bible. That starts at Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11 is like the Lord of the Rings preview. It's like the backstory. It's giving you how did the world get to the state that it's in when we come to it at Genesis 12. How did things get to where they are when God calls a childless couple, elderly, named Abram and Sarai? How did the world get that way? And what is God going to do about it? So all of that, Genesis 1 through 11, super compressed. Then after that, the bulk of the Bible is the second part, the covenant with Israel. Covenant with Israel, everything from Genesis through Malachi in our Bibles. If it's a Hebrew Bible, then it's everything from Genesis 12 to 2 Chronicles. Order of the books are different in Hebrew Bibles, but it's the same material. The covenant with Israel. This is the second grand movement in Scripture. And there's a lot of sub-movements, and there are a lot of weaving and, and, and plot summaries and things coming in. Um, different stories, characters come in, they come out, nations rise, nations fall, all of this stuff. But it's within the overall scope of this guiding theme called the covenant. And the covenant is what every single one of those prophets with weird names that have books named after them, every single one of them is in some way, shape, or form trying to point Israel back to this covenant that God made with them, starting in Genesis chapter 12 and unfolding through then. So then the third part of the Bible is the new covenant. The second part actually promised that there would be a new covenant because the first one didn't work because the people messed it up. And so God said, I, I know you've messed it up, you continue to mess it up, I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's going to be different. It's going to be similar in some ways, but it's going to be different in others. It's going to be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm not going to replace and make new people. I've always and only will have one people of God. But that one people of God is going to get a shift in identity, a shift in its borders, and it's going to consist of a whole bunch more people from other tribes and nations and languages because that original covenant was promised to Abraham God said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. The new covenant, we see that now unfolding. And that's everything from Matthew to Acts chapter 1. 
is the new covenant that's inaugurated. And then the fourth stage of scripture, the end times or the church age or the latter days, you'll see it called sometimes. This is everything from Acts chapter 2 through Revelation 20. This is everything that happens when the new covenant's been given and then the thing that enables the new covenant to be kept is given. And it's not a thing, it turns out to be a person. And the person turns out to be the Holy Spirit. So everything from uh, Matthew, or excuse me, from Acts 2, all the way through all the letters of the New Testament, all the way up through the book of Revelation to the very end is this age that the, the Old Testament envisioned called the latter days, the Messianic era, the church age, whatever you want to call it. But we know on Pentecost, what happened? Peter stood up and he said, hey, these guys aren't drunk. What's happening is what the prophet said would happen in the latter days. And he goes on to quote Joel. And all of the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament prophets who were speaking of this time known as the latter days. So when somebody says, you think we're living in the last days? You can say, absolutely. Peter was, and so are we. And we will until Jesus returns. Because the last days is the Hebrew expression for everything between Messiah's exaltation and his return in glory. And that's where we find ourselves. And then the Bible ends. Revelation 21 and 22, it ends where it began. The new creation. The new creation. We just get a glimpse. There's few glimpses throughout the prophets. There's a few glimpses in the Gospels. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we kind of get the, as close as we can get to a full-on uh, revealing of what's going, where it's all headed. And lo and behold, we end up right back in a garden, just like it started. Only this garden now encompasses all the nations. There's no need for a temple, because God himself is the temple. And there's harmony, not just between us and God, but between us and creation. The earth is renewed, restored. John sees a vision. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride dressed for her bridegroom. How many of you realize that the goal is not to die and go to heaven? Heaven is temporary, at least as it exists right now. That's not the end game. That's not God's end game. It's not to die and take your soul to heaven. That's American evangelicalism in many circles, but that's not the biblical end game. The biblical end game is... If you die before God renews the world, then he will take you and you will be with him in heaven waiting for the restoration of creation. Because God took those six days, however you want to interpret them, he took those six days to create something that he said was tov ma'ov, very good. So he's not just going to say, oh, sin entered the picture. Scratch that. I'm going to take their souls off to heaven. Harps, clouds, and all. None of that. None of that. Um, the goal is what God intended to do in the beginning to the nth degree. And what he intended to do in the beginning was create people with bodies that you can touch, that you can hug, that you can laugh with, that you can eat with. There's a reason why Jesus ate after his resurrection. was to show his disciples, to show his followers, hey, this is where you're headed as well. The Greeks and the Romans had the disembodied spirit. You go off to, you know, wherever, Hades or the Golden Fields, Elysium, or if you're a Viking, you go to Valhalla or all these ideas. Not the Hebrews. The Hebrews had one view of the end, and that was you die, you go in the ground and rest, and then God raises you all up on the last day and puts all wrongs to right. And Jesus comes in in the New Testament, and he introduces a caveat to that and says, yeah, that's all going to happen, but I'm going to do it first so that I can be the down payment, so I can be the promise, so I can be the seed promise. Uh, and then when I return, 
I'm going to do it for everybody. That's what you read about when you read 1 Thessalonians 4, that some people say it's about a rapture. No, it's Jesus returning, raising the dead, ushering in the new creation. So it gets fully explained in Revelation. But if you can get this here, let me lay it out for those of you that are visual. I was an art major here, so I like to look at things. This is how, if you broke down the Bible story visually and divided it up, laid it along a timeline, so Genesis is here, Revelation's over there, this is roughly how it would look in terms of these sections. Now, what's the first thing you notice about this layout of the Bible? Old Testament's huge. Yeah. Look at the second part, part two of the Bible, is massive. It's bigger than all the others combined. Which part of these five sections do most Christians have the least familiarity with? The biggest one. The one that was the most important for Jesus and his disciples because they didn't have any of the rest of it by that time. You, you know, I mean, most of you should know, when Paul preached the gospel, everywhere Paul went and preached the gospel and, and preached from the scriptures, he was preaching from the Old Testament. He, he didn't, New Testament wasn't around. Uh, they didn't have gospels. They had the story. They had the word. They had the demonstrations of power. They had the faith community and the, 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 um, the ecclesia, the spirit. But they didn't have a New Testament. They preached the gospel from the Old Testament. And so as, as Christians... To me, one of the biggest passions I have is getting people back into the Old Testament. Every Tuesday, I lead a Bible study at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Charlotte. The owner's a friend. He gives free food for people. They come. It's a free Bible study. It's pretty amazing. If you're in Charlotte on a Tuesday, come join us. I put the video on my website on my YouTube channel every week so you can follow along. We spend a year and a half, and we talk through Genesis chapter by chapter in 30-minute sections. Now we're in Exodus. I did chapter 4 yesterday. We'll do the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 in two weeks when I get back there. But we do that, and I do that specifically through the ministry of Disciple Dojo because I know that most of the people in most of the churches aren't getting that. Instead, they're getting a weekly sermon and maybe some devotional reading and some books, whatever they can pick up on the side. But a systematic read-through of the Old Testament is not high on the priority list of most churches and most ministries, unfortunately. But yet, that's how Jesus learned the Bible. That's how all of the disciples learned the Bible. They learned the Bible in their homes, having the stories of the Old Testament recited to them. Most of the people in Jesus' day knew the Torah by heart, or could at least follow along, even if they didn't know every single word or line. The scribes did. The scribes knew all of the Torah, all of the prophets, all of the writings verbatim. And you can still find people today that, are, that have that devotion you can, in Orthodox Jewish circles. You can find people who can, you can just start saying a Bible verse, a sentence, and they'll pick it up and keep quoting. And we just think that's amazing. But I guarantee you, in your minds, you have the equivalent of this in word count memorized. It's just in the form of worship songs, movie quotes, lyrics to other stuff that you like, you know, pop songs, all that kind of... We have the ability. It's just we have a lot more distractions than they had in Jesus' day from memory. So getting because of that, we have work to do. We have to get back into what they, in biblical days, grew up with as almost second nature. And so that's why I'm a huge proponent of studying the Old Testament because look at it. It dominates Scripture. 77% of their Bible is the Old Testament. Look at what else you notice. What are the two smallest sections? Getting in the end. What are the two sections that Christians usually divide over the most? Beginning and the end. 
Oh, you don't believe in six literal creation days? Well, you don't take God seriously. Oh, you have a different end times view than I do? Well, you just are ignorant and I'll pray for you. These are the kind of things that denominations will divide over. Your views of Genesis? Oh, you don't think the flood covered the entire earth? You think it was just a Mediterranean? Oh, you must not love Jesus. Those are the kind of stuff, that just stupid, stupid stuff that Christians divide over. And they act as if that is the litmus test for whether you take scripture seriously. All the while not having a clue what's going on in this section, by the way. So that's one thing that I want to challenge you with is through, whether you're interning, whether you're still in school, or whether you're about to go into some form of ministry or just out into the marketplace as a disciple of Jesus, is to encourage you get familiar with the story of the Bible. The story. It was given to us as a narrative. It was given to us as a library. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. It wasn't given to us as a set of rules. It wasn't given to us in bullet points. It wasn't given to us in devotional format. It was given to us as an epic, as, as, a, as a grand epic that spans the millennia and that we are part of, stretching all the way back to the very first person. This picture was done, I think this was about 2008, 2007, 2008. Um, you can come up and look at it later if you want to, but what it is basically is a guy who does large-scale data sets, like does visual rendering of large-scale data, uh, he laid out every chapter of the Bible along the bottom. So each chapter, depending on how long the chapter is, is how long the vertical line is. So like Psalm 119, right there, it's like super long because it's the longest chapter of the Bible. So laid them all out, and then he noted every cross-reference between the Old and the New Testament. Every single time an Old Testament book references another Old Testament book, he made an ark. Every single, there's over 60,000 on here. And when you step back and look at it, it's a perfect visual to bring home the point of what I'm talking about. The Old Testament all points forward to the New Testament. And the New Testament all reaches back to the Old Testament. There's not a section of scripture that's not in some way uh, trans-testamental, so to speak. It's all connected and that's one of the reasons, again, tomorrow we'll get into that, what that means in terms of how to interpret it, how to study it. But I want to give you, in the, in, in we have about a half hour, I want to give you the most important concept, I think, for what it's worth, the most important concept that you can grasp to then read and understand Scripture responsibly and in a way that will build you up and edify you and, and, and just give you the, the, the hanger on which to put all the clothes that you find in the wardrobe. And that's the covenant. The concept of the covenant. If you can get the covenant, now this is a Wesley Foundation and usually Methodists don't speak a lot about covenant because that's covenantal, that's reform, that's Calvinist. We don't want any of that. Nonsense. Nonsense. Covenant is foundational. And it's every denomination, every branch of Christianity in some way, shape, or form is, is dependent upon the idea of covenant. And so we need to know what it is and what it isn't. But what you find, if you go back to that first part of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, you find that God, he creates the nations. He creates, first he creates people. And then because of sin entering the picture and humanity's rebellion against God, sin actually is, a, is an active force. It, it overthrows and takes, it usurps the authority that God gave his vassals Adam and Eve, both together, not one or the other. And because of that, by the end, by Genesis 3, we see a chasm. 
between man and God. And then by Genesis 11, it's a full-blown gulf. And all of Genesis 1 through 11 is this downward spiral of humanity. And it reaches its depths with the flood account where it says humanity was so bad, was so wicked, all their thoughts were only evil all the time. That's one of the things, if you saw the Noah movie uh, uh, last year, I, I saw it, I actually enjoyed it, even though it was, t- it was based on Apocrypha, uh, Book of Enoch, not at all on the Bible. But one of the few things, they got some things right in it. I can't say that for the Exodus movie, but the Noah movie, I can say they got some things right in it. And one of the things that they got right in the Noah movie was the level of depravity and destruction that humanity had wrought in its, in its uh, spreading out and its conquest. Just, just the, the murderousness, the might makes right, the killing for anything, you, all of that you do see in this prelude in Genesis. You do see these type of characters. You do see this state that the earth is, the Genesis text uses the Hebrew word, ruined. Humanity, it says literally, God saw, God was grieved that humanity had ruined its way upon the whole earth. And so because of that, God said, I'm going to ruin them, using the same word in Hebrew, and he sends the flood. And the purpose of the flood was to wipe the slate clean so that his purposes could continue on. So humanity, disaster was averted in the flood, but only temporarily. Uh, Noah, his family were saved, and God continued through him to bring about, bring us all the way up to the time, like two chapters later, when he brings Abram on the scene. And in Genesis 12, when it really begins, that's the beginning of the Bible for all intents and purposes. Everything that comes before is setting up Genesis 12 on. By the time we get Genesis 12, we see that there's God and there are the nations, Egypt and Babylon and all of these, the Hittites and all of these people that are spread out. And there's a chasm between it. And so God calls into being, firstly, he calls a man named Abram. Abram has a son, has two sons. God chooses the younger and passes on this promise through the younger. That younger son has two sons. God passes on the promise to the younger. That son has 12 sons they become, by the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, the 12 tribes of Israel. And through Israel, the people, God is going to redeem the nations. Who has a Bible in here? Those of you whose hands are not up, shame on you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Open to Genesis chapter 12. I want you to be able to see this. There are certain passages that every Bible you own should be highlighted or circled, or squiggly marks, or whatever you do to show that it's important to remember it. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, is one of those sections. It is one of the most crucial verses in the entire Old Testament, because Genesis 12, 1 through 3, sets the trajectory for the entire rest of the Bible, all the way through Revelation. So you cannot overstate the importance of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And when you turn to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I'm repeating it so it sticks in your head. Somebody read it. What do we read there? Somebody read those three verses. Out loud. There you go. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, so God makes about six promises here to Abram, conditioned on his obedience and going. If he doesn't go, this doesn't happen. So there is a condition. God does tell him this requires obedience. Abram does this, but God promises if you do this in obedience, if you respond to what I'm telling you, I'm going to do some specific things. One, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Right now, you're a very wealthy but childless uh, old man living in Babylon or somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, give or take. God says, if you follow me, if you go where I'm going to show you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you physically, spiritually, emotionally. He's going, to, he's going to bless him. I'm going to make your name great. Kids in churches four or 5,000 years from now will be singing about you in right arm, left arm, and Father Abraham. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know that. That's a promise God made. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So I'm not just giving you stuff, Abram. You're actually going to be a blessing. All blessings come from God. So he is the conduit through which God's going to work. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. In other words, I've got your back. No one can stand against you. If they come against you, they'll be coming against me. He's speaking this to Abram, and he'll extend this to his seed, his offspring. Using the, the, the word is actually seed that's used. But that'll be a promise that God makes to his people that he will protect them from their enemies. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you or will bless themselves through you or will be blessed in you. Hebrew is a fluid language. It can mean any of those. But the main point is clear. Through you, Abram, I'm going to rescue the world. All that went wrong in Genesis 1 through 11 I'm going to restore, and it's going to come through your line, through your offspring. He'll repeat it in Genesis 15 when he appears and he does this covenant ceremony involving a smoking fire pot and some cut up animals. And if we had time, that's a great story to get into it, but uh, we don't, so buy the DVD. Um, and he'll repeat it and he'll say, this is to your seed, S-E-E-D, Hebrew, Zerah. It's a collective singular. It can mean seed or seeds. It can mean offspring or many offspring. Paul will tell us in Galatians that it is the seed is Jesus himself. We'll see how that works in just a little bit. But he says to your seed, to your offspring, I'm going to bless the world through you. He transmits that. He carries that blessing on to Abram's son Isaac. Isaac transmits and it carries on to his son Jacob. Jacob passes it to his 12 sons, the people of Israel. And by the time we get to Exodus, Israel is a nation within the nation of Egypt in exile. They're trapped. They're, they're you know, in bondage. And God says, remember, guys, I made a promise to Abram. I'm bring you out, take you into the land so that this can get back on track. Because this can't happen while you're in bondage for 400 years. And so God does that through the book of Exodus. And when he brings them out... He makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. He doesn't just take them and say, you're free, go run and frolic. No, he takes them out of Egypt to the mountain of God, to Mount Sinai, northwest Saudi Arabia, right there, Mount Horeb. They're all gathered around the mountain. Moses and the elders come up. Moses then goes to the very top. God makes the covenant with him. 
And it starts with what's called in Hebrew the Ten Words. We know them as the Ten Commandments. That is the beginning. That is the, uh, the preamble to the Constitution, so to speak. That is the beginning of what God says. This is how you as a nation, all 12 tribes, but one nation, are going to be my bridge between the world. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are terms God uses throughout Exodus. And if you follow my covenant, if you keep my covenant, which three times in Exodus the people say, we will do and obey all that the Lord has said. Three times they ratify the covenant. They're sprinkled with blood. It's a done deal. It's a signed contract. God says, if you do that, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your relationship with me. Because they will be drawn through your worship back to me. And we see this in the Old Testament almost start to happen. Almost. You see it during the reign of David and Solomon where the nations and rulers from the other nations start to come to Israel and to come to the temple and to give gifts to Israel and to learn about this God of the Hebrews. You see it starting and then downfall. Solomon introduces idolatry, polygamy, all of the things into the life of Israel and God says, that's it. That's that's." You've set your course, and it's going to be a downward spiral from here. And we see that in the Old Testament, the rest of it. Right after Solomon's reign, the country is split in half, civil war. The northern kingdom goes into exile shortly after that. They're done. They're scattered away, and they don't exist anymore. The southern kingdom of Judah limps along for another few hundred years. God tries to get them to return to the covenant, return to the covenant. The, the famous word that the prophets use is shuv, return. Turn. We hear it as repent, turn, or return, but it's the same word. Turn to me. Come back to this, Israel, because this is what you were made for. This is why I chose you. This is why I elected you to be my vessel to reach the nations. But the Old Testament ends with this promise unfulfilled because Israel broke the covenant. And they didn't just accidentally break the covenant. They full-on rejected the covenant. And they said, we want nothing to do with it. Or at other times in history, they'd say, yeah, fine, you can, we can do the covenant thing, but we're also going to sacrifice to Baal. We're also going to keep our Asherah shrines on the high places where we can go have ritual sex to worship those gods. Because, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that if you're a pagan? That's what they were doing. We're still going to do child sacrifices to Moloch to ensure that the rains come and our crops grow because children are expendable as long as it's for our better good and our comfort. They're still, they do all those things, but we'll give God some lip service as well. And so God sends in prophets like Hosea, Amos, Ezekiel to tell them, no, no. The clock's ticking. Turn before it's too late. Turn before it's too late. Turn before it's too late. Hundreds of years he says that. And then finally, it's too late. They're destroyed. Whole nation's taken in captivity. God destroys the very temple that he allowed to be built. That He said, I'll make my name dwell here forever unless sin destroys things. And sin did destroy things. So the place where God said, I'll make my name dwell forever, God himself actually allows to be completely destroyed because it had become an idol. And the people were banking on it. The people were saying, well, God can't destroy his temple. We're safe here because he said he'd, hold it, he'd uphold his name here forever. And God destroys it and says... You don't get it. This temple was always just a precursor to the actual temple, to the real temple, to the presence among you that we'll see in the new covenant. But this is how the old covenant ends. With this plan dashed. They come back from captivity, 
and it's a small group under guys like Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's, a, it's a battered little nation trying to rebuild their walls. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild it, and the people who remember the first temple weep because the second temple is nothing compared to it. They remember the former glory, and they limp along like that for a few hundred years. And then there's an announcement. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And then Jesus parts the waters of the Jordan for baptism. And everything else happens after that, New Testament-wise. But that's the overview of the Old Testament. Just, just a quick overview. I saw a hand in the back. Yeah. yeah I just want to word the re- what reference you're talking about when you said, I'll make my name great unless sin messes it up. No, it says, uh, the people, it's in Jeremiah. I have to look up the verse. The people were saying, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, because God had promised when Solomon, when he consecrated it, I'll make, during Solomon's prayer, this is where my name will dwell forever. And then what God says through Jeremiah is, don't presume on that when you're in rebellion. And so we see it. I just really condensed a lot of scripture in that one. But, but that's the general thing. So yeah, there's not a verse specifically that's saying that one thing. But there's, that's the whole tenor, especially of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Especially Jeremiah. Those are the two that deal with the temple and God's relationship to it. Um, but this is how the Old Testament ends. Well, in the Old Testament... In Ezekiel, one of the, the main prophets, one of the major prophets, there's three of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And they're major because their books are really long. He makes this promise near the end. Ezekiel has, he's in exile. Ezekiel is one of the priests that was taken in that exile to Babylon. And so he can no longer minister in the temple. And he yet, God still says, no, you're going to continue to be a prophetic voice for me. And so God gives him these things to do that are really weird, these prophetic acts that he has to carry out, and they're all symbolic, and, and it's, it's, Ezekiel's awesome. But one of the things towards the end of the book, getting towards the end, chapter 36, God tells Ezekiel, hey, it's not over. Yes, the second wave of exiles are coming to Babylon because I'm, I'm completely done with the city of Jerusalem as it now stands. And I'm going to wipe them out completely. And for 70 years, the land is going to be barren. And then God says this afterwards. In chapter 36, uh, starting in 24, he says, I will take you from the nations, where they're in exile, and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll also sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. At the same time, roughly, that Ezekiel was getting that message in Babylon, back in Jerusalem, as the final wave, as the final destruction was coming, God gave a message to Jeremiah, Ezekiel's contemporary. Same thing, chapter 31, starting in verse 31, says, Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Instead, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, never again remember their sin. 
two promises in the Old Testament, in the prophets, that God would come and he was going to do something new. It would involve bringing Israel back from exile, putting them back in the land, and then from there, there would be something, and the prophets don't give the full explanation, the, the events of the New Testament show us how it worked out on the ground, but they say somehow, I'm going to put my spirit inside you. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would kind of come upon people and empower them for specific things at specific times. But God says, but in this new covenant that I'm going to make, I'm actually going to dwell inside of you. And the temple will become entirely irrelevant as a building because the temple will be a living being consisting of all my people. And that's why the New Testament authors will say things like, you're come to a temple built of living stones. You yourselves are the temple of God. It's always this collective idea, the, the Christians together. So a promise of God sending his spirit, writing the law. Notice he doesn't say there won't be any more law. He says, I'm going to write the law on your heart. So it's going to be, it's going to be like the old covenant. It's going to be like the Torah, symbolized, symbolized by the tablets and with all the laws and stuff that come after. It's going to be like that, but it's going to be different as well. It's going to be internal instead of external. It's going to be community-based instead of given from a mountaintop. And I'm going to enable you to actually do it. I'm not just going to give you an ideal to shoot for. You know, I'm going to actually live inside of you in some way, shape, or form. I'm going to allow you... If you cooperate, if you are responsive, if you are spirit-filled, to actually do my new Torah, my new covenant. And that's the promise that we get. Well, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the covenant is the same concept. It's just a different way that it's played out. Old covenant, Israel relates to God and through Israel and their relationship with God in covenant obedience, the nations would be drawn to God. That went wrong, not because anything wrong with Torah, Paul goes out of his way in Romans and Galatians to show, but because the vehicle itself broke. The vehicle itself decided to not work anymore, to turn away. Israel was the problem, not Torah. So God said, I'm going to keep my promise. It's still going to be through the seed of Abram. It's still going to be through the people of Israel, but it's going to be through their Messiah summing up the people in himself, representing Israel in his own body, and him being the new way that all the nations will be drawn to me. And it's not going to be written on stone tablets. It's going to be written on your hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a supernatural work. So the Old Testament paradigm continues. It just has a different face. It has, it's, it's a 2.0. It's, it's, been, it's been debugged, so to speak. It's the, it, but it's the same thing. It's the same goal. We just see Jesus is the way, what Jesus does, the Old Testament starts with a promise that's very singular and it's very specific. And then through the Old Testament, we see it start to fray. As disobedience and sin enters, it starts to fray and get tangled. And, and, and these different threads come out of what God's going to do. And there's a prophetic thread here, and it's going to come through the Messiah here. But it's going to be a priest here like Melchizedek. And it's going to be the, the son of David. And all, all these threads the Old Testament ends and they're just kind of hanging loose. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and takes all those threads and braids them together into one strand, which is himself. 
All of those things are brought together in Jesus. So Jesus becomes Israel because he always was Israel. He's the only faithful Israelite. He's the only one who kept Torah. There's a reason that Jesus chose 12 apostles. There's a reason that Jesus had to be baptized in the Jordan River where Israel entered the promised land. There's a reason that after that he was driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. There's a reason that he provided bread in the wilderness just like Yahweh provided bread in the wilderness to Israel. There's a reason that he does these miracles that he does in the Old Testament that only God could do. He calms the waves. He walks on water. Old Testament's crystal clear. Only Yahweh himself can control the waves. Only God Almighty himself can speak to the waters and calm the storm. Yahweh is the one who rides on the clouds. Yahweh is the one who splits the waters at the Red Sea. Yahweh is the one who does all this stuff. And then in the New Testament, you have Jesus stepping on the scene and doing those very same things. And most of all, he claims to be able to forgive sin. Only Yahweh could do that. Only in a functioning temple with a full priesthood. And Jesus comes on and he says, nope. Because this now is the inbreaking of the new covenant. My kingdom, like a mustard seed, starts small, but it's going to expand and fill the earth. So this, this understanding makes sense of so many things that Jesus said and that he did. His actions, which just seem kind of odd or quirky, become incredibly significant when viewed through the lens of what he's trying to be or to, to communicate to the people that he is. The true Messiah the true seed of Abraham, the priest according to Melchizedek, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. You know, what does he do at Passover? He celebrates it as what we know of as the Last Supper. That was Passover. That was the holiday that celebrated Israel coming out of bondage from Pharaoh into service of God and being given the covenant. And what does Jesus say? This is the blood of Moses' covenant? No, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many because he has the nations. What does he do with his disciples? Matthew starts his gospel. You have the nations coming to Jesus as an infant through the wise men, bringing him gifts. What does Jesus do at the end of his gospel? He empowers his disciples and sends them out to the nations specifically to teach them and to disciple them. Jesus' end game is always this. And he calls Paul. Paul becomes the Gentile to the nations. And he takes the ministry and it's expanded because even Jesus' first followers, all of whom were first century Judeans, they still, they could understand in theory, it's pretty cool that we're going to allow the Gentiles to come in, but they do have to be Jewish, right? They have to come through, they have to come in through Moses and then they can enjoy Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, that's not what the prophet said. That's not what Ezekiel said. That's not what Jeremiah said. That's not the way it goes. This is the new covenant they come directly in through me because I, Jesus, not you, the church, but I, Jesus, am Israel. That's the distinction where covenant theology and replacement theology, they get that wrong and they try to say, well, the church is the new Israel or no, there's two peoples of God, Israel and the church, and they both have their way. Both of those are heresy. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is Israel, Jew and Gentile, together united in the Messiah of Israel. And so if you see that, then so much of Scripture uh, becomes so much clearer. There's, there's, I won't walk through this because we're out of time, at least I think. Um, but I've given you a handout that's got a way that people talk about, how can I get familiar with the Old Testament? One of the ways is to just read it. But when you read it, you can get bogged down or you can get sidetracked or you just kind of, uh, I don't, 
keep me on focus. So what I've done is I've put together, uh, this is the key points in the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament history, the story. So this is everything from prehistory of creation all the way through the divided monarchy back from exile. Um, it's all of the historical events, the action, the plot line. So if you had, like, if you're in a, a small group, oh, we're going to study the Old Testament, you could use this as kind of a reading plan. All right, week one, we're going to talk about this stuff. Week two, we're going to talk about this stuff. Um, it's just a resource for you to take. But more than anything else, uh, I hope you leave at least realizing the importance of not just the Old Testament, but of the whole Bible as a story, as a meta-narrative. And we're in the second to last act, or the first to last, I don't know how you say that. We're in the one right before the end, uh, and, and we're part of that story. So uh, I know some people have to go, but I can stick around for a while. So if anybody, if you, questions, comments, if you want to heckle, if you want to flatter, whatever you want to do, um, let me know. But if you need to leave, no shame on you. You can go ahead and take off. Uh, ladies first. Okay. The, um, the way that it's described sometimes, it feels like God is adapting his plan based on our response and based on our lack of obedience. But then on the other hand, it feels like Jesus was always the plan. So I was just curious if you could like give some clarity to like, yeah. what was God's intent. Yeah, that's, that's the beauty of it is what you see is there, there are passages where God does things that seem puzzling to us. Like there are passages that flat out say God changed his mind mm-hmm. or God repented from what he was going to do. Those give theologi- theologians all kinds of nightmares. <laughs> but if you're just a biblical reader, let the text say what it says. Okay. And, and rather than try to force everything and get a systematic framework that my God then all makes sense, be able to read through and say, huh, in some way God really does respond to his creation and the relationship is real it's not a puppetry relationship like he actually does engage with us and our plans and our our actions can affect what god wants done but you have to balance that on the flip side with the passages that say yeah but in spite of all that god's ultimate plan is still going to happen perfect example is judas Scripture makes clear Judas was was betrayed guilt Jesus for the money. He he it was in his heart to do it. He for whatever his motivation and people differ on that. Scholars posit all kinds of uh, hypotheticals, but regardless, Judas went and did what he was going to do. And then looking back after the resurrection, when the disciples look back and Jesus opens their eyes to scriptures, they see God had taken that into account all along. Even that choice by Judas to, to, to betray Messiah, which is also spoken of as Satan himself, his attempt to devour Jesus. Revelation pictures it as his attempt to devour Jesus as he's, right as he's being born. Um, that's how Revelation puts it, but it's describing like Satan's attempt to destroy this child. Um, even that attempt by Satan, what you realize reading it through and looking back is, God, that was already taken into account as well. Satan actually brought about his own demise through his disobedience, through his you know, plan, whatever you want to call it. So you have to, I, I would say, you have to hold this balance. And this is where free will and predestination, we'll talk about that some tomorrow. But this is where I think people start to get a little too, I've got to get all my theological ducks in a row. And instead say, all right, well, Scripture presents us with these facts. So what do we do in light of that? 
What you don't want to do is end up with, well, God has this plan from the beginning, and it's going to happen, and Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So that means that everything we're doing is predestined and predetermined, and we're just automata, and we're just going through the motions. Because that is absolutely foreign to the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God who interacts, who will allow humans to barter him down, like Abram. I won't destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people. What about if there's 40? Okay, I won't destroy it if there's 40. What about if there's 10? God enters into these relationships. So in his sovereignty, he is front-loaded or built into the system a genuine uh, reciprocity with people. How that works out in the big scheme, we want to be careful. We don't want to iron everything out. One of my professors in seminary, a guy named Doug Stewart, he said the thing that drives systematic theologians crazy but the biblical theologians love, and those are two disciplines. Systematic theology takes all of the biblical data and tries to come up with a systematic representation. So you have a doctrine of man, doctrine of sin, doctrine of creation. You know, that's the big textbooks you see. Biblical theologians say, forget all that. What is the message of Genesis? What is the message of Exodus? What is the message of Torah? What, you know, so they go kind of book by book. And let, well, those two camps are sometimes at odds. And what Stuart said, and he's on the biblical camp, he said... The, the thing that drives systematic theologians crazy is just when they have all of their theology straightened out and all of the wrinkles ironed out, they come across a passage that pops up over here. Yeah, so they do that, they straighten that out, and then something over here. And, then they, and you'll always be doing that because there will always be something in Scripture that will make you go, wait, how does that work with what I thought God was? So it's, all, it's this ongoing, and it's something that what I've come to appreciate more and more, in fact, is the ability to be fluid and loose with our particulars, but to be firm with the essentials and firm with the main story. And, and more than anything, staying with the text. And if the text says something that I can't quite figure out, i got to let it. And I have to let it challenge me instead of trying to tame it, which is what some, sometimes, not all, but sometimes theology can go that route. Um, does that help at all? Yeah. Yes. Um, this is more so just an observation, but um, I just kind of saw a connection with like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and promises that it's like the law is not going to be internal and it's like it's not going to be abolished. And then when like Jesus, I feel like Jesus really fulfills that in his sermon on the mount when he says like, you know, it's like your righteousness has to surpass even the Pharisees if you want to enter into heaven. Right. Like he takes these things like do not commit adultery, do not murder, and he takes them to the nth degree, saying like you can't even like let anger fester in your heart because that's where the law is now. Yeah. And yeah, that's that absolutely right. And one of the things that we as Protestant Christians, those of you that are Protestant, if you're into Catholics in here, uh, if if you're Protestant, one of the things that we've gotten wrong, the Reformation was pretty cool, but it got a lot of things wrong as well. So there had to be some balance. But one of the things the Reformation got wrong was it completely bifurcated faith and works. And it completely uh, downplayed the notion of, of, of actually living out your faith through your works and raised this doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, to the point where uh, it would be unrecognizable, I think, to the biblical authors. And because Jesus would, I mean, Jesus never once, he flat out said it. He said, don't even imagine that I've come to do away with the law. I haven't come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. And then the outworking of that, Paul ran into this all the time in his ministry because people would come to Paul and they'd say, you're doing away with the law. 
And he'd say, no, 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 I'm not doing away with it. Jesus fulfills it, and he fulfills it through us. But that fulfillment doesn't equal keeping those laws. It's keeping it without keeping them. And it's, it's a really subtle concept. And honestly, churches and Christians haven't really known what to do with that a lot of times. And so you, you end up with this amalgam approach of, okay, well, we got to keep the Ten Commandments because, I mean, they're the Ten Commandments. But we don't have to worry about, you know, cotton fiber blend suits or shaving my beard or, you know, any of the menstrual stuff, ladies. We don't have to, you know, we can kind of get around that. But we got to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, what Paul does in the New Testament, I have a video on my website. It's called, Do Christians Keep the Ten Commandments? And the answer that I give people is, no. We keep the law of God as communicated through the Ten Commandments, but not the Ten Commandments. Because they were just the beginning of the covenant. The, the, the Hebrews never separated the Ten from the others. Only literarily they did. But in terms of like what you do, they all, it's all Torah. It's all keeping Torah. So even to this day, you get some, like in, in some Messianic Jewish congregations or uh, particularly Seventh-day Adventists and other groups that are big on, like, uphold Torah, keep the law, keep the law, which is good because that's what the Old Testament says. You know, I'll, I'll move you to keep my law. But the problem is they, they don't always factor in the way in which Jesus fulfills it and then empowers his followers to live that fulfillment out. And so we're living out Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament laws. There's a... A section in Bible for the rest of us I do, a, a, it's like a 30-minute session. It's on Christians and the law. Uh, it's called, Can I Get a Tattoo and Eat Shrimp? And it looks at those issues that come. But, but you're absolutely right. Jesus never once lowers the bar, ever. He always raises the bar in terms of holiness. So a lot of people get the idea of, you know, through evangelicalism, it's come to be the idea that Jesus saves us from having to keep all those rules and all those laws. Yeah, but he saves us to something much more rigorous and yeah. much more involved. So tithing, is it required in the New Testament? No, it's not. As a, as a Christian, I can't tell people it's a sin if you don't tithe. What I can say is tithing was the Old Testament minimum. And Jesus raised the bar. And in the New Testament, tithing is not even on their minds. They're giving everything. They're just giving. So tithing becomes generosity. And the, the number, 10%, 15%, just becomes irrelevant. But, of course, you always get people that will either fall to legalism or libertinism. So say, yeah, I don't have to tithe. I'm just going to give my heart to Jesus and keep my money in my bank account. And that's, you know, that's when you have to, the spirit has to lead and move and convict. And the community has to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to call your bluff on this one. That's, that's nonsense. <laughs> so do I, were there any other comments or questions? All right. Well, um, so tomorrow... We're going to look at um, a topic, the Bible. What is this book exactly? So we're going to, I'm going to hopefully reintroduce you to this thing that you cherish. And then tomorrow afternoon, I think, we'll be doing one on, so what about this whole Calvinism deal? Because this is the Wesley Foundation, but I like John Piper. What do I do? Uh, so we'll, we'll get, get into that.